are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray to let's pray together. Oh, Father, it is our joy, it is our pleasure to worship you, sing of your glory and your might and your deeds. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Oh, Father, we do confess we live in a world that proclaims your glory. There is no direction we can turn. There is no place we can go to escape your glory. We are in a theater that speaks, that declares your glory, your deeds, your power, your might. All things proclaim your beauty. You indeed are the glorious God. And your word teaches us how to praise O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your word teaches us how to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed. You are glorious, O God, and our words cannot even begin to describe how glorious you are. You are worthy of all our worship, our lives, our obedience. But we do confess. We confess your glory on the one hand, and on the other hand, we confess our foolishness because we, like the fool of the Psalms, have said in our hearts, there indeed is no God. While creation proclaims your glory, we have lived as if you are not true, as if you are not righteous, as if you are not good, as if you are not beautiful. We have not worshipped you as you ought to be worshipped. We have not treasured you as you ought to be treasured. We have not adored you as you ought to be adored. Even more, we have not treated our neighbors as they ought to be treated. We have not spoken that which is true. And so we come to you as a people together, clinging to your mercy. And we are refreshed because in the scriptures we find that you indeed are a God of mercy, a God who delights in forgiveness. And our sins are before us and they are before you and they are too many to name, yet we take refuge in you. We take refuge in your mercy and your love. We see it in Christ Jesus and we take refuge in him. He is the servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And we plead this Jesus before you, forgive us for his sake. Blot out our sins and remember them no more. And Father, we do come now asking for grace in our time of need. The heavens declare your glory day in, day out. They never stop speaking of your beauty. 
we ask for your help. May we be a people who see your beauty, treasure your beauty, and then go and proclaim your beauty day in and day out, just like all the rest of creation. The sky above proclaims your handiwork. Oh, may our lives, our deeds, the way we treat our spouses, our children, our neighbors proclaim that you are the true God day in and day out. We ask that you would incline our hearts to sing the the true worship songs that we find in the book of Revelation. Incline our hearts to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Incline our hearts to sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed. Oh, Father, we do not want to be a people who merely confess, who who barely know. We want to be a people who adore and love you. And so we ask for your grace. Would you change us and make us new? Would your light shine forth from us as a gathered, covenanted people? Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word and that you've given your word to us and that you have promised to work in us and through us by your word. Oh, Father, we ask as we turn to Mark chapter 12 together that you would reveal the greater glory of Jesus to us and that you would move our hearts to worship just like David worshiped when he saw your son. Oh, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Well, friends, grab your Bibles. Open them up to Mark chapter 12. We've got just three verses to look at together, starting in verse 35 and reading through verse 37. So Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35, let's listen to God's word together. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Father, would you be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. Back in Mark, and when we think about Mark, it's interesting. We began the series, the Gospel of Mark, back in January of 2019. It seems like a, a long time we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And if you have a really good memory, if you go back to the first sermon On the Gospel of Mark, I laid out three goals for us as a church. Does anybody remember those? Oh, I'll give you extra credit if somebody somebody knew. The three goals were this. First goal, we want to see Jesus. Second goal, we want to hear Jesus. And third goal, we want to follow Jesus. 
So I want to camp out on the first goal of seeing Jesus a bit. I said in the first sermon this. Mark wrote this story so that we would be able to give an answer to who this Jesus is. And the story that Mark tells us works to fulfill our most basic and fundamental need to know in the fullest sense our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our first goal is to know Jesus in the fullest possible sense. And as we think about our journey in the Gospel of Mark, we're finally in chapter 12. We've learned a lot about Jesus so far. And by the way of summary, we can point to to two themes that we've, we've been learning about Jesus. And the first theme to point out is the matter of identity. What have we learned about Jesus' identity? Well, we've learned that this Jesus is unlike any other man. While well, Jesus gets tired and sleeps, we remember Jesus falling asleep in the boat. While Jesus gets hungry and he eats, there is yet something remarkably different about this Jesus of Nazareth, something that actually transcends our humanity. And we can just work through the story a bit. Remember how Jesus spoke to the unclean spirit as the unclean spirit came into the synagogue. Jesus said, be silent and come out of him. And when we wrestle with this scene, we, we wrestle with the questions of the crowd. They say, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they come out of him. And Jesus spoke to the paralytic. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And there are the religious leaders and they are questioning and and we should question and well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus spoke to the wind and the sea and they obeyed him. He spoke, peace be still, and all was still. And we should question just like the disciples, who then is this that even the sea and wind obey him? And as we consider these similarities, we find this. Jesus speaks as Yahweh speaks. Jesus acts as Yahweh acts. And so we are led to confess that Jesus is indeed the God of Israel. A great mystery to consider. And then we have a second theme. And the second theme is a matter of vocation. We have learned that this Jesus, who is unlike any other man, who is like the God of Israel, has a certain vocation to fulfill. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Now, we know that the Jews had certain expectations of this coming son of David. They were under the Roman thumb, and they they longed for a Davidic son who would come and wage a holy war against their foreign intruders, taking back their land, freeing them from oppression. And we find this nationalistic desire popping up in the Gospel of Mark. Just in this chapter, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus saying, is it lawful to pay, pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're inquiring, what, what kind of Davidic son does Jesus aspire to be? But we learn that Jesus' messianic understanding does not fit with the people that he ministers to. We don't find Jesus taking aim at Rome. Rather, we find Jesus forgiving sin. We don't find him wielding a sword. Rather, we find him picking up a cross. We don't find him battling foreigners outside the land of God. Rather, we find him pointing his finger at Israel's shepherds and leaders again and again and again. And we learn that this Jesus is the king who, is not, who has come to save Israel, not from Rome, but from far greater enemies, enemies like sin and Satan and the people of God themselves. And so when we look at these two themes, the theme of identity, the theme of vocation, both of these themes come crashing together in our short little text. In fact, these two themes, identity and vocation, provide a way for us to actually make sense of this little text. 
And so we're going to look at this little text in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to ask two questions. The first question we're going to ask is this, who is Jesus? And when we ask this question, we're getting to the matter of identity. Who is this Jesus? And the second question we're going to ask is, what has this Jesus come to do? And we're focusing on the matter of vocation here, mission. So we can begin with our first question, who is Jesus? So I'm a casual fan of boxing. I don't watch a lot of boxing matches, but when a, a big boxing match comes on, anything with Floyd Mayweather, I'm going to watch it. And if you're familiar with boxing, you know that boxing isn't just two brutes getting into a ring and beating their heads in. While in boxing, there is beating, there is blood, there is pummeling. There's definitely more to that than in boxing. There's a dance to boxing. There's a rhythm to boxing. There's a logic to boxing. And we can consider what's going on in the Gospel of Mark as a boxing match. And this boxing match starts at the end of chapter 11. Israel's leaders have launched a coordinated offensive attack at Jesus. And they come after Jesus with a barrage of punches. They punch away. They're, they're asking, by what authority? Who gave you this authority? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Which commandment is the most important of all? So they're throwing their punches, but as we've read through chapter 11 and chapter 12, Jesus plays good defense. He's evaded all of their tax, attacks, so much so that we come to Mark chapter 12, verse 34, and Mark says this, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Impeccable defense. But thinking about a boxing match, a good fighter not only plays great defense, but he'll begin to play offense. And that's what Jesus does here. He launches a counterattack, and we find Jesus' counterattack in our text and in the rest of chapter 12. And what's so interesting here is no longer do we hear the voices of the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but from this point on, we only hear the voice of Jesus. And Jesus is going to set the record straight about his identity and ministry. When Jesus throws punches, nobody responds back to him. And so Jesus starts his counterattack in verse 35. Mark records, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Here's Jesus' counterattack, and at first glance, it doesn't seem to make much sense to us. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? This is like standing up in the university classroom and shouting at the top of your lungs. How can scientists say that water freezes at zero degrees Celsius? What would happen to you if you stood up in the university classroom and shouted that? Well, people would look at you and then they would drag you out of the classroom because you're, you're crazy. Everybody understands that water freezes at zero degrees. Likewise, in Jesus' day, no one really disputed that the Christ was to be the son of David. It was conventional wisdom taught in the seminaries and the, the pulpits. So verse 35 is a head scratcher. And it would have caught the attention of all who were in the temple that day. Because if you turn to the scriptures, you find promises about a coming son of David everywhere. The future fortunes of Israel are dependent upon a coming son of David. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, for instance, says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Isaiah is saying everything depends upon a coming son of David. Or Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 24, Ezekiel looks forward to a day when the Lord is going to put another David, a Davidic son, over Israel. I and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So it seems that we have a problem before us. Jesus says in the temple, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Yet the the scriptures, not just in one place, but in several places, point to the fact that the coming deliverer of Israel is in fact going to be the son of David. Everything depends upon a son of David. And it seems that Jesus' question here does not only take aim at the scribes, but ultimately takes aim at the scriptures themselves. And so we should be scratching our heads a bit at this point. What is Jesus doing? And our appreciation for Jesus' teaching and preaching has to grow as we work through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus isn't a cool academic who's writing an academic paper, who, who couches everything he says, who qualifies everything he says with a footnote or two footnotes at the bottom of the page. Jesus is a provocative preacher, and he's aiming as he preaches in the temple to disturb and upset his hearers' preconceived notions about his identity and his kingdom. That's why Jesus preaches this way. And what he, what he does is he grabs hold of our attention and he won't let go of our attention till we wrestle with his words. And so we have to ask, well, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the first thing we can say is this. Jesus isn't denying that the Messiah will be a son of David, nor does he have an ax to grind with the scriptures. So go back to chapter 10 in Mark's gospel. If you remember chapter 10, we met this fellow. He's a blind beggar. He's sitting on the side of the road. His name is Bartimaeus. And what did Bartimaeus say on the side of the road? He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what what does Jesus do? Does Jesus silence him and say, Bartimaeus, you got it wrong. That's not the way it's going to be. No, what does Jesus do? He, He welcomes Bartimaeus and then he heals Bartimaeus. So in principle, Jesus isn't opposed to this relationship to David. He isn't opposed to being called a son of David. So again, we ask, well, what is Jesus talking about here? I think we can cut to the logic of Jesus' question like this. Jesus is saying something like this with his question. The scribes teach about the Messiah. They have their categories and explanations and expectations for the Messiah, but they haven't told you the full story of the Messiah. They are blind to the Messiah's greater glory. They don't know anything about the Messiah. Even more, if the Messiah were right in front of the scribes, if the Messiah were speaking and healing and reigning right in front of them, they wouldn't even recognize him. And Jesus makes clear with his question that the glory of his identity cannot be summed up as the son of David. Much more can be said. In fact, much more must be said of the coming Messiah, Jesus himself. And so Jesus works away at this for us. He starts talking in verses 36 and 37. He says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So to make his point, Jesus quotes the first verse from Psalm 110. And so if we want to see the glory of Jesus, the greater glory of the Messiah, we need to turn to Psalm 110 and pay a careful attention to what Jesus does here. So if your Bibles, 
Turn to Psalm 110. Jesus is going to be a tour guide. And he's going to point out some things that we need to take notice of. So as our tour guide, the first thing that Jesus points to in Psalm 110, if you've turned there, is the author of Psalm 110. So the superscript of Psalm 110 should read what? A Psalm of David. So Jesus wants us to understand the writer of this Psalm is David, the great king of Israel. And so we move on from that point and Jesus brings us to a second point. And he wants us to understand that, that David overheard as if he was eavesdropping on a conversation. The conversation is this, the Lord said to my Lord. And the third thing that Jesus wants to point out to us is the identity of these two individuals. The Lord said to my Lord. The first Lord is obviously the God of Israel. But we have to ask, well, who is the second individual in this conversation? Who is the God of Israel speaking to? Well, it's clearly not David because David is overhearing. He's eavesdropping on this conversation between these two individuals. Nor can this this person that the God of Israel is speaking to be David's son. Why? Well, no father would call his son Lord. So Jesus points out these, these three things to us. He says, look here, look here, look here. And then he draws this staggering conclusion. And the staggering conclusion is this. The coming Messiah, the one who will sit on the throne of Israel, is so great that even David, the greatest king of Israel, spoke of him saying this. My Lord. And we have to work here a bit. So this falls on us with a bit of weight. We have to think about David. David was the greatest king of Israel. He's at the peak of kingship in the story of the Old Testament. You compare every king in Israel's story to who? To David. To David, God made great and precious promises. God spoke to him saying, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established before me. If we know the story of David, he was a man after God's own heart, unlike Saul. He was a mighty warrior. Remember the song that Israel would sing about David. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He was a man of courage and faith. We remember how David went out into battle by himself and struck down the great champion of the Philistines, Goliath. And we can say more and more about David. He was the great king of Israel. But we ask, well, what does David do in Psalm 110? Well, he bends low in humility and worships and confesses, my Lord. When David sets his eyes prophetically on Jesus in the spirit, he clearly understood that Jesus would outstrip him in every way, in every category. Jesus is superior to David in purity, in power, in mercy, in faithfulness, in courage, in strength, and beauty. And so we can take a step back and we ask, well, what are we learning here about Jesus' identity from this connection? Well, we learn this. Jesus is not simply the son of David. He's not simply another king in a list of kings. No, Jesus is the Lord of David, or as we learn in the very first verse of Mark's gospel, he is the very son of God. And we find here again, like so many other times in Mark's gospel, that Jesus is unlike any other man. But we can't stop here, because there's the truth, and now we need to apply the truth to our hearts We have to ask ourselves, well, have I really learned Jesus' identity for myself? 
It's, it's one thing to say that Jesus is the son of God, that he's unlike any other man, that he is the God of Israel, but it's another thing to taste the goodness of Jesus, to see his beauty, and to be amazed with wonder. And so as we read Mark's gospel, we're presented with a choice to make. Will we be like the scribes, or will we be like David? What were the scribes like? Well, they spoke of the Messiah, they taught about the Messiah, they read about the Messiah, but they could not see the Messiah's glory. They were not amazed by his beauty. They could not taste his goodness. There the Messiah was before them, and they did not have eyes to see, and they refused to worship. Or will we take the posture of David, the greatest king of Israel? The call of the gospel today is not simply to speak rightly about Jesus, that's important, but we have to take it a step further. We have to worship Jesus rightly. And here we have to follow in the footsteps of David. Here we see the greatest king of Israel in his glory and power bending low in worship to Jesus saying, my Lord. And this is what we have to do today as well. If we have truly learned Jesus' identity, we will say this, my Lord. Lord. So that's the answer to our first question. Who is this Jesus? We're talking about identity. He is the Son of God, the glorious Messiah. And we have to ask our second question, getting at the matter of vocation. What has this Jesus come to do? What has he come to do? And we have to wrestle with Psalm 110 again. If you were in the temple that day listening to Jesus, Jesus' preaching would have likely quickened your pulse a bit. In your brain, a conversation would have been taking place like this. Has the time finally come? Will the long-awaited king of Israel finally arrive? Will he finally throw off our foreign oppressors? Will all of our enemies finally be destroyed? Could this long-awaited king have something to do with this Jesus who is preaching right in front of me today? And all of these thoughts would have been warranted. If you're not familiar with Psalm 110, there is some powerful ammunition in this old song. Going back to Psalm 110, the psalm speaks of a powerful king who will rule by God's request over all enemies. Verse two says this. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. The psalm speaks of the liberty of the people of God and their love for the promised king. Verse three. Your people will offer themselves freely on that day of your power. And best of all, if you were an Israelite in the temple that day, Psalm 110 speaks of the defeat of every enemy. We find these graphic words in verse six. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And again, Jesus' quotation of Psalm 110 should make us scratch our heads. We have to ask, well, how does anything we find in Psalm 110, world dominion, corpses covering the earth, square with Jesus' messianic vocation? We've learned in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has come to forgive sinners and heal the sick and show compassion to the crowds. He even extends salvation to the Gentiles. He reveals his messianic mission in chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we ask, well, how does any of this that we find in Psalm 110 fit with the mission of Jesus? This makes us scratch our heads. We need to make a few comments here. 
And the first comment that we need to make is this. Jesus loved the scriptures. Even more, he came for the very purpose to fulfill the scriptures, and that goes for all that we find in Psalm 110. When reading Psalm 110, there's this this temptation we run into, and that's to turn up our nose at the graphic imagery of the psalmist. We think in our minds, well, we're moderns now. We live in a modern country. Surely we've moved past these barbaric images, things like world domination. That doesn't seem good. Corpses covering the earth, that doesn't seem good. Universal of one God and one king. However, we have to say Jesus is not opposed to anything that we find in Psalm 110. He doesn't turn up his nose at the idea of world domination, the defeat of all of God's enemies, universal worship. Jesus is not opposed to messianic glory or power. In fact, if you read on in your New Testaments, you'll find all that there is in Psalm 110 confirmed and vindicated. Think about the book of Revelation or think about 2 Thessalonians. The apostles apply all that you find in Psalm 110 to Jesus in the second coming. So we have to make another comment as well. And we have to ask, how do these realities that we find in Psalm 110, how are they going to come about? What's so interesting is that Jesus' speech in the temple is that he only quotes the first verse of Psalm 110. This is so interesting. Jesus knew the whole psalm. He likely had it memorized and he could have stood there in the the temple and quoted the whole thing, but he doesn't. And Mark's alerting us to something here. He wants us to pay careful attention to the first verse of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. We can ask, well, what does that mean? Well, in Psalm 110, verse 1, the God of Israel comes to this great Messiah and he gives this great Messiah a command. He doesn't command the great Messiah to pick up a sword and fight. He doesn't call the great Messiah to to gather together his captains of the army and go out to battle. Rather, the God of Israel commands the coming king of Israel to do what? Sit down. The Lord says, I'm going to fight. You, the king, you sit, you wait, and you're going to inherit And when we look at verse 1, the agenda of Jesus' ministry begins to make sense and why he would bring this verse before us. We see that suffering and glory are not at odds. Jesus will have his kingdom. He will rule over every single nation. He will receive universal worship. Every enemy of God's kingdom will be destroyed. And it's going to happen not by the sword. It's not going to happen as the Gentiles do it. No, he's going to gain messianic glory by sitting down. Or we could say more precisely, by taking a Roman cross to his back. And this verse helps us understand how Jesus could endure the ministry that he endured. Think about the trauma, both emotional and physical, that Jesus endured in his life. He was harassed and maligned by Israel's leaders, not once, not twice, all the time. He was rejected by the very people he grew up with. His family thought that he was out of his mind. And worst of all, the nation, his own people, rejected him and called for his destruction. And we ask, well, how can Jesus endure all of this? How did he keep from panic? How did he keep from depression? How could he push on with his ministry day after day after day saying, the son of man must suffer many things? How could he do this? Well, the answer is Psalm 110 verse 1. He lived by the promise of the Father. 
As Jesus suffered, as he was rejected, as he died, he held to the promise, and this was in the background of his mind. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus knew that on the other side of the cross, there was a crown. He knew on the other side of all of this shame was great glory, and his father was gonna come through for him. And this is the news that we must feed on ourselves because the truth is this, Jesus has received his crown. Jesus is the king of nations. The father has come through on his promise. While Jesus sat, the father subdued. And when you move past the gospel of Mark, this is the word that is proclaimed throughout the rest of the New Testament. This is so interesting. One of the disciples, remember there's 12 disciples and they were likely there in the temple with Jesus as he preached Psalm 110. And one of these disciples helps us make sense of this truth. So Peter, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, only a few days after Mark chapter 12, stands up in Jerusalem and preaches to a great crowd. And what does he preach about? What text does he use? Well, Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 38. Pay careful attention to what Peter says. He preaches. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. What is Peter doing here? Well, he's putting all the pieces of the gospel together for us. Suffering and glory are not at odds. Jesus has entered into his messianic glory. He is the great king of Psalm 110. He is now clothed in majesty and honor. He now shares the very throne of God. And how did he get there? He got there by sitting down, by taking a cross. And Peter teaches us that Jesus clung to this promise and the Father fulfilled it. And so we ask, well, what is the application for us? Well, we can go back to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two. Peter preaches this and the crowd is faced with the truth. Jesus is the true king, the king of Psalm 110. And Luke records this. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This news that we hear from Psalm 110 is not a dry academic fact. It's news that demands a response. And the crowd there, as they heard Peter announce the truth that Jesus has entered in to Psalm 110, they're cut to the heart. They feel the weight of it. They're in trouble if this Jesus is truly the king of all. What does Peter say? Well, he answers the crowd And he tells them something that we've heard so many times in Mark Gospel. Peter announces to them, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the message is there, God is faithful, Christ is the King of Psalm 110. And what must we do? Well, we must repent because Jesus Christ is indeed the true King. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we desperately do not want to be like the scribes. They talked about the Messiah. They taught about the Messiah. They read about the Messiah, but they could not see his glory. The Messiah was right in front of them, and they could not worship him. 
We pray, save us from hard hearts. Give us faith like David. Oh, that we might be like him. Oh, that we might bend low and say, my Lord. Amen.